what is up my dudes welcome to olympia oddities i'm trista and i'm steven and we are rapidly coming up on squatch fest it's july 30th and the 31st at the cowlitz county convention center and we're gonna try to make it on friday and if steven can't go then i'm definitely gonna try to make it to like at least one of the days that sounds good i'm gonna try i'm definitely gonna try to get that day off so that we can go because i've never been and i want to go oh it is an amazing time yeah get that i think there's a contest so like get that call finessed like i want that thing in top form we're winning i just i don't know how if i can also like hold back my want to just every time i see somebody dress up as sasquatch just be like patty (laughs) that is a reference that only people who know the patterson gimlin film and that youtube video of the guy tasting the patty labelle sweet potato pie (laughs) (laughs) will get but you know what? I love it and we're leaving it in. <laughs> uh, let's get into the topic of the day now. So today we're going to be telling you about the daring teams of dogs and their mushers who made the delivery of a diphtheria antitoxin to the isolated community of Nome, Alaska. And the very special dog who made the final leg of the run, Balto. Or did he? This topic ended up having tons of controversy surrounding it. I was not prepared. I was like, oh, we'll do a fun, lighthearted dog episode for the next one. Nope. Wrong. Were there like tabloids of just like, did Balto deliver the, like. We'll get into it. Uh-oh. Um, I want to see ridiculous, uh, like, like, bat dog helped deliver the serum. I want to see that. Balto fraud. I just want that headline. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we'll get into the history of the outbreak, some of the other life-saving dogs and people involved, and the controversy surrounding whether or not Balto was actually the lead dog during the final stretch. There is a trigger warning for this episode. I forgot to give one in the last episode, and I apologize. I went into the show notes and I put it in there. Um, but in this episode, we will touch on kids with kids with deadly illness who sometimes do pass away from the illness, as well as some animal death and mistreatment. I do promise that it does have a happy ending, though, um, so please stick around. But if that's not something you want or can stand to hear right now, I totally get it. And me and Steven will catch you again next time. Nome, located just two degrees south of the Arctic Circle, was the biggest town in Alaska in 1925. During the gold rush, it boasted a population of 20,000, but its numbers had dwindled since then, leaving behind a population made up of 975 European settlers and 455 Alaska natives. While it may have been the largest town at the time, it was also incredibly isolated. From November to July, the port on the southern shore of the Seward Peninsula of the Bering Sea iced over and ships couldn't pass through. The town's only access to the rest of the world during this time was the Iditarod Trail, The Iditarod ran 938 miles from the port of Seward in the south, winding through several mountain ranges before leading to the vast interior of Alaska, before finally reaching Nome. Supplies and mail were generally delivered to the town via dog sled. Just a decade later, bush pilots would become the main source of supply delivery instead. Could you imagine, like, living where, just during part of the year, the only way to get supplies is by a team of dogs no the closest thing that i could imagine to that was like when i was living in ohio and the nearest walmart was like almost an hour away like that's ridiculous got a regular john Tornow over here i mean like i really admire people who could live off the grid but 
no that's insane that is absolutely insane like you're waiting like for what feels like forever for important very important supplies food be it medicine which we're hey we're talking about right now but that's yeah no that's that's absolutely insane that's so harsh if i time traveled to any time before 2011 i would simply pass away (laughs) before 2011 yeah (laughs) i don't want to give up my modern conveniences gnome only had one doctor curtis welch who also served the surrounding communities he and his support team of four nurses worked out of the Maynard Columbus Hospital, which had just 25 beds. Sometime during 1924, Dr. Welch had discovered that the hospital's entire supply of diphtheria antitoxin had expired, and he placed an order for more. Unfortunately, this shipment of antitoxin didn't arrive before the port closed due to ice during the winter, and more couldn't be shipped to Nome until the spring. It was just days after the last ship had gone through the port when Dr. Welch treated his first round of sick kids. It was December of 1924, and he'd diagnosed a few children with sore throats or tonsillitis. He originally ruled out diphtheria because it's extremely contagious, and he expected to see symptoms in the kids' family members or other cases popping up around town. These sick kids all seemed like isolated incidents, so they originally didn't really think too much of it. Over the next couple of weeks, the number of sick children grew, and four died. Welch had not been able to autopsy these bodies and began to fear that it was an outbreak of diphtheria. According to the CDC, diphtheria is a serious infection caused by strains of bacteria called Corynebacterium diphtheriae that make a toxin. It's this toxin that causes people to get extremely sick. The bacteria most commonly infect the respiratory system. When the bacteria gets into and attaches to the lining of the respiratory system, it can cause weakness, sore throat, mild fever, and swollen glands in the neck. The toxin made by the bacteria kills the healthy tissue in the respiratory system, and within two to three days, the dead tissue forms a thick gray coating that can build up in the throat or the nose. This coating is known as a pseudomembrane. Ooh. Isn't that gross? That is brutal, man. This coating can cover tissues in the nose, tonsils, voice box, and throat, making it very hard to breathe and swallow. If the toxin makes its way into the bloodstream, it can cause heart, nerve, and kidney damage. The bacteria can also infect the skin, which causes open sores and lesions. Before the introduction of the vaccine, diphtheria was the leading cause of childhood death around the world, including in the United States. Holy crap. Yeah, I didn't know that. That is... That is seriously brutal. Yeah, I had no idea that, like, the thick lining built up in your chest. And I had no idea that it was, like, the leading cause of childhood death. In mid-January 1925, the first case of diphtheria in Nome was diagnosed. This three-year-old boy had died just two weeks after becoming ill. The next day, Dr. Welch attempted to administer some of the expired antitoxin to a seven-year-old girl who had been showing all the classic signs of diphtheria. He had done this in hopes of seeing if it still had any effect, but the girl died just a few hours later. Dr. Welch realized an epidemic of diphtheria was set to rip through the town and called Mayor George Maynard to set up an emergency town council meeting. The council immediately decided to implement a quarantine. That sounds familiar. Yeah, it's a word we're all sick of by now, I feel like. (laughs) Not that it was a bad thing, like... Oh, no, absolutely not. I miss miss normal life. We're getting there, we're getting there. We are, we are are getting there. Shows are gonna be a thing again. The day after the meeting, January 26th, 
Dr. Welch sent telegrams to all other major towns in Alaska to alert them of the health risk and sent another to the U.S. Public Health Service in Washington, D.C., asking for assistance. His message to the Public Health Service read, An epidemic of diphtheria is almost inevitable here. Stop. I am in urgent need of one million units of diphtheria antitoxin. Stop. Mail is only form of transportation. Stop. I have made application to Commissioner of Health in the Territories for Antitoxin already. Stop. There are about 3,000 white natives in the district. No stop at the end. And also, why does it matter? What is white native? I don't understand that. And also, why does that matter? I get amount of people, but seems a little suspicious. Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> that is a little sus. What? What's? What? 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 What's your angle, Doctor Welch? Grape juice. <laughs> Even though the town of Nome had implemented a quarantine, there were over twenty confirmed cases of diphtheria and at least fifty more at risk by the end of January. Without any antitoxin available, it was estimated that the mortality rate of the roughly 10,000 people in the town and surrounding areas would be 100%. So just everyone would die. Ouch. The area had already been hit hard in the past when the Spanish flu struck in 1918 and 1919. It had killed 50% of the native population in Nome and 8% of the native population in Alaska total. More than 1,000 people had died in northwest Alaska, and 2,000 people had died all across, across all of Alaska. The population that was hit the hardest during the Spanish flu and diphtheria outbreaks were the native population, as they did not have any resistance to either of the, either of the diseases. At the emergency town council meeting, someone had come up with an interesting idea. Superintendent Mark Summers of the Hammond Consolidated Goldfields proposed a dog sled relay using two fast teams. He suggested that one start at Ninana and the other at Nome, and they would meet each other in New Lotto. The trip from New Lotto to Nome usually took a month, but it had been done in a record of nine days once. Dr. Welch estimated that the serum could only last six days when carried through the brutal conditions of the trail. So, hold on a second. Mark Summers... I, I heard that name, and now all I can see is, remember the original Double Dare host? Yeah. yeah. His name was Mark Summers, so oh, I'm just no. imagining that man. Good. <laughs> just I- between two, just now I'm just imagining that's a premise on a Double Dare episode. There's like, we need both teams to get a dog sled. And just- <laughs> You've got to run across treacherous conditions in Alaska. you got to grab the orange flag and come back, and then you're getting the trip to... <laughs> Get the trip to the Bahamas and the Lego set and the boombox and the orange TV with the slime green detail buttons on the remote and the translucent telephone. Ooh, yeah, not the translucent telephone. The translucent telephone. <laughs> they decided that Leonhard Seppala, one of Summer's employees, would make the 630 mile trip from Nome to Nulato and back. Seppala had previously made the run from Nulato to Nome in just four days breaking the record. He had also won the All-Alaska sweepstakes, sweepstakes three times and become somewhat of a legend for his abilities and strong relationship with his team of dogs. His lead dog was 12 years old and named Togo. Togo had an equally legendary reputation for his leadership, intelligence, and ability to sense danger. Mayor Maynard wasn't completely sold on this plan and suggested that they should try to have a plane fly in some antitoxin. 
The first winter aircraft flight in Alaska had just taken place in February of 1924, when Carl Eelson flew between Anchorage and McGrath using a plane issued by the U.S. Post Office to make eight experimental trips. The longest trip this plane had made was just 260 miles, and the conditions were miserable. I love how they were just kind of like, hey, we should test this sometime. You know what we should do to test it? Yeah, let's use a mail plane. Packed full of mail. Just, just, just on a whim. Yeah, no one needs any of these packages or letters. No bills. No, you know, no, no doctor. N- n- nothing. The worst conditions it flew under was negative 10 degree weather, and it required the pilot to wear so much winter clothing to stay warm that it was nearly impossible to operate the plane. The plane also had to make several crash landings. That sounds horrible. Have you ever have you ever experienced negative temperatures like outside of a freezer, like just just on Earth? As a resident of the Pacific Northwest, no, I have not. Ha ha, take that, bitch. It is it is brutal. Yeah, it sounds like it. That's why I'm not a part of that. Like, <laughs> I looked at that shit and I said, "That's not for me." I well, think... actually, I was born here, so I didn't really have any choice in it. <laughs> I want to say when I was in Ohio, it got to like. I want to say negative five, but I almost think that's over-exaggerating. So I'm going to say something that I believe is more accurate and say negative three. I know negative three actually happened. But yeah, that yeah that sucked, man. And then like snow literally up to like just past my shins. I had, and I still had to go to school. I was I like, I literally have that boomer story of I got I had to go to school and home. I, I went to school uphill both ways, ways, uphill both ways, and and, and and snow up to my knees, and 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 found a needle in the haystack. Yeah, I got. I literally have one of those stories. Yeah, Washington's like, oh, it's thirty-eight degrees. Kids don't come to school for the next week. That was Tennessee. Kind of missed that. Yeah, no, it was the best. <laughs> it was. Except for when then when it wouldn't snow, and then you're just at home like, damn. Okay, Jerry, let's do this. Jerry, Jerry, <laughs> Jerry. <laughs> In 1925, there were only three operating planes in all of Alaska. The planes were vintage standard J biplanes belonging to Benet Roadbaugh's Fairbanks Airplane Company. The planes had been taken apart for the winter, had open cockpits, and had water-cooled engines that would be unreliable in the cold weather. The plane's pilots had gone back to the States, so Alaska delegate Dan Sutherland attempted to get the authorization to use an inexperienced pilot named Roy Darling. Dig the name. Yeah, he should be like a country star or something. I agree. Like an old-timey, like Grand Grand Ole Opry. They should have used him instead of Roy Rogers, in my opinion. Roy Darling. The Roy Darling TV show. Oh, yeah. He sounds like Orville Peck's brother. Orville Peck and Roy Darling. That's a tour. Let's go see them. (laughs) the board of health decided that while it may be quicker it just wasn't worth the danger and voted unanimously for the dog sled relay they notified musher seppala and he began his preparations for the trip that evening the u.s public health service found 1.1 million units of diphtheria antitoxin in west coast hospitals which were sent to seattle before being shipped up to alaska The next ship set to arrive in Alaska was the Alameda, but it wouldn't arrive in Seattle until January 31st. Once the ship finally got there, it would take another six to seven days to get to Seaward. Just harsh. Man. No prime one-day delivery. (laughs) 
Yeah, we're sitting in the the 1910s, so I mean, yeah, we're we're pretty we're pretty before that. I want something the instant I think about it. Earlier today, I wanted to go to a uh, Mopop up in Seattle, and I was like, or no, we're in the 1920s. So upset that like we couldn't uproot our entire day and just drive up there. Like when I want something, I want it now. I could never. I would be like walking from Alaska down to Seattle. I'd be like, I'll just get it myself at this point. Yeah, no, I would too. That's just so ridiculous. <laughs> On January 22nd, the Anchorage Railroad Hospital managed to find 300,000 forgotten units after their chief of surgery, John Beeson, heard of the need in Nome. The antitoxin units were placed in glass vials, then wrapped in quilts before being surrounded by a metallic cylinder that weighed a little over 20 pounds. Once packed, it was handed to conductor Frank Knight, who arrived in Nanana on January 27th. While this supply wasn't enough to totally fix Nome's problem and stop the outbreak, it was enough to keep it at, bi- at bay until the larger shipment could arrive. How do you just forget about 300,000 units of a medicine? It seems like that would take up space, would it not? I'm just trying to, like, assess... Okay. Like what? What would these vials look like? Like assuming that it's a vial, a like it's probably vial. a vial. Yeah. How big would that vial be per se? And then like three hundred thousand in a case. How big is that case? Because that could be anywhere from like the size of my desk, which I know nobody can see, to like maybe like probably like I don't know. And again, no one can see my arms, but you. But like you know, a pretty good size box. I'd say like what two and a half feet by yeah. maybe two and a half feet arguably i don't know but that's still a lot i feel like it'd be like two or three cases of that right i don't know that is a lot temperatures across the interior of alaska were the lowest that they had been in 20 years caused by a high pressure system from the arctic in fairbanks the temperature was negative 50 degrees 25 mile per hour winds swept snow into 10 foot high drifts Traveling by sea was incredibly dangerous, and almost all travel across the interior halted. There were also limited hours of daylight because of polar night, a phenomenon where nighttime lasts for more than 24 hours that occurs in the northernmost and southernmost regions of Earth. I'm pretty sure that's the exact definition of hell freezing over right there. Just those conditions. While the first batch of serum arrived, Governor Bone gave final authorization to the dog relay, but ordered Edward Wetzler, the U.S. Post Office inspector, to arrange a relay of the best drivers and dogs across the interior. These teams would travel all day and night across treacherous conditions until they handed off the package to Sepala at Nulato. The decision to go ahead with the sled dog teams infuriated William Fentress Wrongfont Thompson, publisher of the Fairbanks Daily News Miner and aircraft advocate. We'll just go ahead and call that guy Comic Sans. He had tried to help line up a pilot in a plane and ended up using his newspaper to write scathing editorials about the decision to go with a dog relay. Tom Parson, an agent of the Northern Commercial Company, which contract, which was contracted to deliver mail between Fairbanks Unalakli, telephones and telegraphs went out to their mail delivery mushers who were told to turn around and go back to their houses. Being a mail carrier was a revered position in the area, and they were considered the best dog mushers around. The majority of the relay drivers across the Alaskan interior were native Athabascans, direct descendants of the original dog mushers. And that part of the history of this relay kind of gets talked 
over a little bit. So I made sure to feature a couple like native mushers and their stories in this because honestly, they had some of the most brutal ones too. Like holy shit, some of the things these people went through. Also, Athabaskans dibs on the black metal band name. Hell yeah. The first musher to be handed the package was Wild Bill Shannon. He picked up the package from the train station in Ninana on January 27th at 9 p.m. He and his dogs headed out immediately into the negative 50 degree weather. He had a team of 11 inexperienced dogs led by one named Blackie. The temperature dropped even more and the team was forced onto the cool, colder ice of the river because the trail had been completely destroyed by horses. Wild Bill had been jogging alongside of his team in hopes of staying warm, but he still developed hypothermia. He reached the town of Minto at 3 a.m. Parts of his face had begun to turn black from the frostbite. I've seen pictures of that, and it's, it, it looks so brutal. Like, I can't even imagine the pain that they're going through. Imagine being the second guy up and the first guy up pulls into town looking like that. You're like, uh, anyone else want to go for me? <laughs> The temperature had dropped to negative 60 degrees. He warmed the serum and himself by a fire for four hours and headed out with a team of eight dogs, choosing to leave three behind. Sadly, the three dogs died shortly after Wild Bill returned for them, and a fourth may have died as well. The serum was handed off to Edgar Calland, who arrived in Minto the night before. He had been sent back to Tolovana, bringing his total miles covered the day before the relay to 70. Calland warmed the serum at his house and then headed off into the woods. The temperature had risen a bit, but still sat at negative 56 degrees. Holy crap. It just feels fake. It sounds fake. Being that cold sounds not real. I know uh, it's real, but it sounds not real. I, I just, yeah. Like I said, I've experienced like negative three at least. And I just, no. Negative, just, No. The serum was handed off to Edgar Calland, who arrived in Minto the night before. He had been sent back to Tolovana, bringing his total miles covered the day before the relay to 70. Calland warmed the serum at his house and then headed off into the woods. According to at least one report, the owner of the roadhouse at Manly Hot Springs had to pour water over Callan's hands to get them off the sled's handlebar when he arrived at 4 p.m. That's brutal. Just like that scene in A Christmas Story, but with your hands to a dog sled. It's horrifying. It really is. is. Two new cases of diphtheria were diagnosed in Nome on January 29th. The town had been following the quarantine orders, but lack of diagnostic tools and the extreme contagiousness of the strain hadn't made it very effective. On the same day, more antitoxin units had been discovered in Juneau. It's estimated that this was about 125,000 units, which was enough to treat four to six patients. Meanwhile, the crisis in Nome had become headline news all around the United States. Newspapers from San Francisco, Cleveland, Washington, D.C., and New York all featured stories about the diphtheria outbreak. Radio sets were just becoming common and helped spread the news into the homes of Americans everywhere. By January 30th, diphtheria had been responsible for five deaths in Nome. Maynard and Sutherland once again started trying to push the idea of using a plane further. They came up with several possible ideas, some more wacky than others. Their plans included flying a large aircraft 2,000 miles from Seattle to Nome, carrying a plane to the edge of the pack ice via Navy ship and launching it, 
and the original plan of flying the serum from Fairbanks. Their proposal also reached headlines across the country and even gained favor favor with several cabinet departments and from Arctic explorer Roald Amundsen. The plans were ultimately rejected by experienced pilots, the Navy, and Governor Bone. William Wrongfont Thompson churned out more angry articles in his paper about those who opposed the plane idea in response. And shocker, they were all in Comic Sans. Papyrus. That's how you get that wrong font. Wingdings. <laughs> Wingdings. A paper completely out of Wingdings. I would subscribe to that paper. Oh, no. <laughs> Governor Bone decided that the relay must be sped up and authorized additional drivers for Seppala's leg of the relay so that they could travel without resting. Seppala was still set to cover the most dangerous leg of the race, the shortcut across Norton Sound, but telephones and telegraphs weren't available in the tiny towns he was passing through, so there was no way to tell him that he should now wait at Shaktulik. The plan for letting him know was to have another driver from the north catch Seppala on the trail. More drivers were arranged for the last leg, including a colleague of Seppala's named Gunnar Kaysen. From Manly Hot Springs, the serum passed through a series of Athabascan mushers before George Nolner George delivered it to Charlie Evans at Bishop Mountain on January 30th at 3 a.m. Evans drove out into the negative 62 degrees. Why? And ended up quickly relying on his lead dogs after encountering ice fog where the Koyukik River had broken through and surged over the ice. Ice fog. He had forgotten to protect the groins of two of his short-haired mixed-breed lead dogs with rabbit skins. Both dogs suffered from frostbite and collapsed, and Evan took their place at the front, pulling the sled. Oh, crap, man. It's like each story gets more and more brutal as you go on. This has got to be the most brutal story we've covered. When he arrived at 10 a.m., both of the dogs had died. The package was handed over to Tommy Patsy, who headed off within a half hour of receiving it. From there, Jack Nikolai, a.k.a. Jack Screw, Sick name. took up the first half of the portage to Old Woman Cabin. I want to go there. And Victor Anagik, Victor Anagik, who had driven up to meet him, took it for the second half. He passed the antitoxin onto Miles Gonningyang on the shores of Norton Shown in Unalakleet on January 31st at 5 a.m. Miles recognized that a storm was brewing and decided not to take the shortcut shortcut across the dangerous ice of the sound. He left at 5.30 and arrived in Shaktulik at 3 p.m. Seppala was not there, but Henry Ivanov had been waiting just in case. By January 30th, the number of diphtheria cases in Rome had risen to 27, and they were quickly running out of the little antitoxin that they had. A reporter living in Nome wrote that all hope is in the dogs and their heroic drivers. Nome appears to be a deserted city. Dr. Welch had gotten an update on January 31st of Gonagan's process, progress, and hoped that the serum would arrive in February. Leonhard Seppla had traveled 91 miles with his sled dogs led by Togo from January 27th to January 31st. They left Nome and traveled directly into an incoming storm. Seppala decided to take a shortcut, shortcut across the Norton Sound while heading towards Shaktulik. The temperature in Nome had been negative 20, but in Shaktulik, the wind chill caused it to feel like it was negative 85 degrees. That's just 
how is that possible? Unlivable. Henry Ivanov's team had run into a reindeer and gotten tangled up just outside of Shaktulik. Seppala had believed that he had a hundred more miles to go and was headed for the original pickup point in Naluto. He actually sped right past Ivanov's tangled up team as Ivanov shouted, The serum! The serum! I have it right here! Oh no. Seppala turned around with the serum in hand, but it was dark by the time he arrived in Ungalic. Ivanov had told him about how things back in Nome had taken a turn for the worse, so he decided to not stop and keep making his heroic dash. He and his dogs headed out to face the storm brewing on the 20 miles of exposed ice on the Norton Sound. The wind chill and extreme winds caused it to feel like it was negative 85 degrees. Togo led the dogs in a straight line through the dark, and they arrived at the roadhouse in Isaac's Point by 8 p.m. They traveled 84 miles that day, with an average pace of 8 miles per hour. 8 miles per hour. That seems faster than what that should be, doesn't it? With the team of dogs trying to go through, like, terrible conditions like that? I'd expect, like, four. I, I just, this is all so unreal. Holy crap. The team rested, then headed out into the storm again at 2 a.m. The temperature dropped overnight, and the wind picked up, and the winds picked up to at least 65 miles per hour. All the ice that Seppala and his team had just crossed over was blown out to sea while they rested. Luckily, there was still some ice next to the shore to travel on, but this ice was rough and starting to break apart and flow out into the sea. The team did their best to stick close to the shore, and Togo carefully picked a safe, safe path for them. They made it back to solid ground, but their challenges were far from over. They still needed to cross Little McKinley Mountain, which has an elevation of 1,200 feet. This was one of the most difficult stretches of the trail due to the many ups and downs they had to do to navigate the mountain's rivet ridges. The elevation climb for the eight miles they needed to travel was 5,000 feet. The team successfully arrived in Golovin, where the serum was passed on to Charlie Olson on February 1st at 3 p.m. On February 1st, the number of people suffering from diphtheria in Rome had once again risen. 28 people were infected, and the serum that was on its way was enough to treat 30 people. Cutting it close there. As the storm raged on and winds hit 80 miles per hour, Dr. Welch called a temporary stop to the relay. His reasoning was that a delay would be better than losing the entire supply. Olsen had been blown off the trail and suffered severe frostbite when he was trying to blanket his dogs. He arrived at Bluff on February 1st at 7 p.m. in rough shape. Gunnar Kaysen was next up was next up to head off with the serum, and he had waited until 10 p.m. for the storm to break with no signs of it stopping. He was using a team of dogs that were owned by Seppala, including Balto. The storm only got worse, and he feared that the drifts would soon block the trail, so he decided to get his dogs ready and just go for it. Balto led the team of dogs through such poor visibility conditions that at times Kaysen could not always see the dogs harnessed closest to his sled. He had made it two miles past Solomon when he realized that he'd blown past the town and decided to keep on going. The winds he encountered after Solomon were so intense that they flipped his sled over. The sled flipping caused the cylinder with the serum in it to fall off the sled and become buried in the snow. Kaysen had almost lost it, but managed to dig it out of the snow. Both of his hands developed frostbite for ha from having to feel around in the snow for the container. Imagine coming like that far with it, being like the last guy, second to last guy, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh no, 
There go there it goes. That was all for nothing. <laughs> like there goes life. That would be my look. That's why I would never be picked for something like this. <laughs> they reached point safety on February 2nd at 3 a.m. 3 a.m. They were ahead of schedule and the next driver, Ed Ron, had thought that the relay had been stopped back in Solomon, so he was asleep when Kaysen pulled into town. Kaysen decided that since the weather appeared to be improving and it would take extra time for Ed to get his dogs ready and his and his dog seemed to still be working fine, that he would continue on to the next leg himself. They ran the final 25 miles of the journey and arrived in Nome at 5.30 a.m. Not a single ampule of the antitoxin had broken, and it was thawed out and able to be used by noon. Altogether, the teams covered 674 miles in 127 and a half hours, setting a world record, and it had all been done in sub-zero temperatures with hurricane-force winds. Alright, I'm gonna try to get through this next part without crying, but I did already cry because the dogs didn't know they were helping! <laughs> That's so sad. I... They that went through all sad. the danger just because their musher told them to. I'm gonna cry again. Okay. <clears throat> A statue of Balto was erected in Central Park. I'm already crying. Ugh. <laughs> Am I gonna have to make you read this? Okay. A statue of Balto was erected in Central Park in New York on December 17th, just 10 months after they arrived in Nome. Balto was able to attend the unveiling ceremony. The statue is near the Tisch Children's Museum and has a plaque that reads... <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Dedicated to the indomitable spirit of the sled dogs that... Stop. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know, I'm, I'm crying, not, no, you're laughing, is, the mood... I'm not, I'm not, like, I'm, it's, it is, it's rough. Okay. Dedicated to the indomitable spirit of the sled dogs that relayed antitoxin 600 miles over rough ice across treacherous waters. <laughs> Why am I crying so hard? And through Arctic blizzards from Ninana to the relief of stricken gnome in the winter of 1925. Endurance, fidelity, intelligence. I don't know why it's... I love a good heroic animal story. Because they don't... They do so much for us. <laughs> And we're such jerks as humans. I'm just full on having a mental breakdown on the pod. <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving us all in. <laughs> okay, I think I've composed myself enough now. Balto was fixed, so he couldn't be used for breeding and ended up falling into the vaudeville circuit, along with the rest of the dogs who made up his team and Kaysen. Kaysen had enough of being a sideshow act and wanted to go back to Alaska, and the dogs ended up being sold to the highest bidder by the company that had sponsored his tour. It's fucked up. It is fucked up. The poor dogs ended up being chained in a Los Angeles-based novelty museum and freak show. Luckily, one day, a prizefighter turned businessman named George Kimball showed up at the museum and was shocked and horrified to find the legendary dogs there and in such bad conditions. He worked with a newspaper, Plain Dealer, to bring the dogs to Cleveland, Ohio. On March 19, 1927, Balto and the six other dogs with him arrived in Cleveland. The city threw a parade for their arrival before the dogs were taken to their new home, the Brookside Zoo. The Brookside Zoo is now the Cleveland Metro Parks Zoo. Which I'm pretty sure, because I lived uh, two and a half hours from, from Cleveland and Columbus. I lived like in the middle. Um, and yeah, I had a friend of mine that would talk about that all the time that they, that Balto was at the 
yeah, the Cleveland Muse- uh, Museum, the Cleveland Zoo, excuse me. Uh, and I believe they actually have a, a small statue there as well. And then also just a fun little tie-in, uh, that paper there, the Plain Dealer, is also the name of the paper in Rocky Horror Picture Show. It is actually a nod because I believe one of the writers, I believe Richard O'Brien lived in Cleveland. Wow. I didn't know that. I believe so, yeah. That is a that is actually a fun fact. Usually when I go fun fact, it's like a war crime or something. So Yeah. Man, I need to work on my fun facts. Also, you can still get copies of the plane dealer. <laughs> when Balto died in nineteen thirty three, he was taxidermied, and his body was donated to the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. In 1995, the movie we all know and love from our childhoods was released, and we got the magic that is kevin bacon balto <laughs> kevin bacon balto he's in that is movie that he's balto i was about to ask i never i, I looked never it up. actually saw it kevin bacon balto you never uh, saw balto no i didn't i did not uh, it doesn't involve the frostbite the faces turning black, i figured as much yeah any of the hot water being dumped on the hands because they froze to the dog's lead none of the dog death there's a goose in it that's all I remember. That's all I remember. Sick See, kid. I was about to say. Goose. I feel like we were both we were both similar kids, but different in the sense of like you were still like I want to watch this because animal movie, whereas I was watching it from like the real sense, and I was like, I feel like much more horrible things actually happen that they're not going to address in this movie that I kind of want to know about. Yeah, I was just like, haha, funny goose. <laughs> funny goose. In 1998, Alaska legislature passed HJR 62 a.k.a. the Bring Balto Back Resolution. The Cleveland Museum of Natural History refused to give his remains back, though. Balto did briefly return to Alaska in October of that year during a five-month exhibition at the Anchorage Museum of History and Art. The display drew record-breaking numbers of people to the museum. In 2017, he was featured in another exhibit at the Anchorage Museum of History and Art. I would love to go see Balto. I was about to say, I understand Cleveland wanting to hang on to Balto. Because, quite frankly, I've been to Cleveland um, on multiple occasions. Uh, Yeah, no, there's nothing worth going there for. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is cool. It it, it is. But other than that, there's no reason to go to Cleveland. I just think that Balto should go back to Alaska. No, I agree with you. I totally agree with you. Yeah, and usually when I do these episodes, like, by the time I get done with, like, weeks of researching them and then writing them and then recording it and then putting it out and promoting it i'm usually pretty done with the topic that i covered like i'm still interested in it but kind of my brain hits like a shutoff point but with this one i'm like i want to know everything about oh yeah every what every single one of these mushers and their dogs went through on this journey like it is fascinating to me before we wrap it up let's get into some of the controversies that surround balto many people at the time including other mushers doubted his claim that balto was the lead dog their suspicions mainly come from Balto's track record. Prior to 1925, there's no record of him ever being used as a lead dog in any runs or races. Seppala, who owned Balto, said himself that Balto was never in a winning team and that he was a scrub dog. Adding to the controversy is the fact that the recreation photos taken in Nome were done hours after Kaysen and Balto had arrived. Some believe that Balto's position as a lead dog was staged for media purposes, thinking that Balto was a more newspaper-worthy name than Fox, who historians believe at least ran co-lead with Balto. Which I don't get, because I think that Fox is a more newsworthy name than Balto. And I mean, not to necessarily 
I don't know, because there was one guy in here, I believe Seppala, if I'm remembering correctly from earlier, that had all but one dog that was completely unexperienced. Yeah, that was the first guy who went out, so it wasn't Seppala. Yeah, not Seppala, but I can't remember his name. But yeah, one one guy. Yeah, had... so he wasn't like the only musher to use dogs that weren't like the yeah. most experienced dogs. Exactly. So, I mean, I don't think it's totally unplausible. Some mushers even believe that Kaysen not waking up Ron was done so he could make the final leg himself and get all the glory. Seppala was pretty mad about Kaysen and Balto's new celebrity status and believed that Togo should get the recognition for going through the longest and most dangerous part of the Serum run. Which is kind of what we tried to do today. We'll talk about Balto, but I also wanted to talk about Togo and the fox and, you know, the dozens of other unnamed dogs that helped out, helped save lives. All of the incredibly courageous unexperienced dogs like holy crap dude oh i'm gonna cry again all right we better we better end this here thank you for listening to another episode of olympia oddities if you want to follow us on social media the facebook and instagram are both at olympia oddities podcast if you want to send in your own spooky story a cryptid sighting or a suggestion for something for us to cover you can dm us there or email us at olympia oddities at gmail.com uh you can also find me uh at rachels.records and also the other podcast that i have that is called double jointed we just put out another episode which is pretty hilarious we also have a really cool festival coming up with rachel's records on the 24th this coming saturday uh it is free we're gonna have four or five bands come out we're gonna have a few vendors we're also gonna have some uh mexican food from don juan's if you or not don juan's excuse me Don Hermano's Mexican Kitchen, excuse me. Um, they're also going to have some veggie options. That'll be at the South Bay Grange, uh, 3918 Slater Kenny Road, Northeast, Olympia, Washington. Um, yeah, again, that is July 24th, this Saturday. Until next time, friends, and remember, go get your vaccinations. <laughs>